0: Welcome to Season 2 of Underrated, a podcast where I interview interesting people with interesting stories. On this episode, I interview CNN hero and fellow Forbes 30 Under 30 Zach Weigel about his commitment to not-for-profit causes. As the founder and CEO of Gamers Outreach, an organisation that provides video games to children in hospital, I learned about what motivates him and more about his charity and how Games Outreach is able to impact 1.25 million children every year. Hey, Zach, how's it going? It's good, Adam. How are you, man? I'm doing really well. We're on uh, opposite sides of, of the globe today. We are.
1: What time is it where you are again?
0: Oh, it's 11 a.m. Oh, wow. Where are you? You said you're Eastern time, but you're normally in LA. I
1: am, yeah. So I'm kind of living a nomadic lifestyle at the moment. Uh, I mean, at the time we're talking here, um, you know, COVID is happening. There are a lot of. Um, demonstrations happening, you know, in Los Angeles. So I was living right in the heart of downtown L.A. I mean, you could see City Hall from my apartment window. And over the last four years, you know, I think living in a city, you're always a little closer to the national conversation and the pulse of what's happening in America. Uh, And so there are different demonstrations and protests that kind of happen. But I have decided to get out of the city for a period of time, at least until things settle down, mainly Speaking selfishly, uh, I have a Husky, and it's been kind of hard with all the parks being closed to give him some exercise that's proper. Yeah, I was wondering how you're going to be holed
0: up in an apartment
1: with, with a cute little Husky. Yeah, it's he's an he's adorable man. He's my my, my adopted son, and uh, I, I put a lot of effort <laughs> into you know, making sure he's a good boy. Right now I'm in Michigan, the short answer to your question. Is where, Michigan's where I grew up, I'm from the Midwest originally, and my goal for the next six months is to kind of live this nomadic lifestyle so my i'm hoping to rent airbnbs kind of around the country and just live in different parts of uh of the u.s spend some time in montana utah tahoe when it's snowboarding season if if that comes back and is a thing but right now i'm kind of you're catching me like in this transition of i I just put all my stuff in storage i'm actually like at my parents house (laughs) which is a little weird being 30 years old now
0: yeah it's strange for everyone yeah
1: i'm literally set up in their basement but i i get along with my folks who have a great relationship and they think my dog is their grandchild. So they're very willing to uh, help take care of him if I want (laughs) to go on some adventure. So it's been good, man, actually. That's awesome. How are you dealing with all this? What's I mean, you're in Australia right now. I know you're trying to get back to the States. Yeah, COVID has been interesting. I think it's a year of
0: change for everyone. I'm at my parents' place. I'm about to actually go to an Airbnb for a little bit just to have some alone space. But no, it's been uh, been really good um, overall. Unfortunately, the U.S. consulates are all closed around the world. So... I can't really get back there at the moment, Um, but uh, I'm coming to terms with the fact that that's okay. A move is, uh, what does a move mean anyway these days? Anything can happen.
1: (laughs) It does raise a lot of interesting questions. You know, I mean, this idea that you have to be tied to a certain location. Now that it seems the world has suddenly caught on to remote work, will we be in a place where cities are as highly sought after at least like living in a city will that be something that people care as much about I'm, I'm not sure i guess we'll find out soon or maybe just the landscape of cities or where cities are located will change from my own experience i noticed a lot of people also leaving downtown la and i don't know if that's super widespread but i could say within my own apartment building there were a lot of people moving out well, yeah
0: one of my now long-term ambitions you know when you've got those little goals that are probably not going to be achieved but you have, have them anyway one of them is now to like have a farm i like that idea that i can just like escape to And I think it's because, like, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I was never a conspiracy theorist, but now that I know a pandemic is possible, i like to have some level of security in my life.
1: You know, Sonny, I I saw someone the other day make this comment that, uh, you know, most people think of cities as being convenient places to live, but perhaps in actuality they're quite fragile when things go wrong. Hmm. And I think this pandemic is sort of exposing that in some ways where clearly uh I can say personally, you know, all the conveniences of a city typically are man-made, right? Like the gym, I can walk to the gym, but in the environment that we live in, the gyms are closed. So where does somebody work out? You kind of have to make do. But in the Midwest, meanwhile back in Michigan kind of thing, on your farm, you can just walk outside and you can build a garage and have your own gym for the same price probably. Yeah, I mean you think about what is it a Equinox membership, you know, 200 something a month, right? Like I mean you you take that same investment and build something that is going to you buy a squat rack, right? It's yeah. probably half the price. And and there you go. You're good for the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and longer, perhaps, indefinitely. So it, it, there is something to be said about, I think, permanence of having your own real estate in that way. And perhaps it is safer. But I wouldn't have thought about that, really, until all this had happened.
0: No, I wouldn't either. It was, my, it was the last thing. But I wanted to get into uh, Gamers Outreach. And so this is, um, you founded it. Um, you're the CEO. And it's like, it scales. It's a charity, right? I'll let you explain it, but, but notably, I didn't realize you were supporting 1.25 million children per year. That's staggering. Like, can you tell us a bit about Gamers Outreach, and then I guess we can go into like how and why and where you came from and all that stuff.
1: Sure. So I, as you mentioned, I, I'm the founder of this organization, Gamers Outreach, and we are a charity organization within the video game industry that is helping to make hospitals more fun. So we go into healthcare facilities, we help kids be kids again. Uh, In a lot of these places, research and treatment are often the priority, and because of that, the patient experience is sometimes either forgotten about entirely or it just takes a backseat. What I mean by that is that oftentimes in hospitals, you have a lot of kids that spend time seeing the doctor, and the hospitals are prioritizing research and treatment, but because of that, quality of life takes a backseat. And so you have a lot of kids that are basically living in these hospitals that sometimes have nothing to do. They're stuck in their rooms. You know, we work with kids that are in the hospitals sometimes for a few days. Sometimes they're in these places and the hospital room has basically become an apartment. They might be living there for an entire year or more, depending on what's going on. Yeah, I mean, as an example, we had a kid we were working with who was waiting on a heart transplant, actually in Children's Los Angeles, and he was in his hospital room for nine months. During that period of time, the doctors wouldn't let him leave his room or the hallway outside of his room because they were worried if something were to happen to his heart, they would have to rush him back and and try to provide some sort of... How old was this kid? He was 12, I believe, 12 or 13, fairly young, like wow, early, yeah, like late elementary, early middle school. That puts COVID isolation in context, doesn't it? Yeah, well, and actually to that point, now we're sort of as busy as ever uh, because... We, we primarily work in children's hospitals. So, very simply, we help bring video games into hospitals. You know, we're going into these healthcare facilities, we're equipping with video games. And there are a number of reasons we do this. We believe video games give kids access to activities. If kids can get online, they're an opportunity to socialize with friends outside the hospital environment. And we're even finding that games sometimes help with therapy directly. And prior to COVID, a portion of the kids are able to go to a playroom or a playground and participate in some sort of group activity or do things outside of the room. Uh, And then you have another group that are stuck in their rooms for whatever reason. Right now with COVID, all of the kids are now being isolated in their rooms due to the physical distancing measures in place. Wow. All the kids are stuck in their room. Unbelievable. And so the hospital staff are kind of relying on games as a way to give kids activity and also just free up their own bandwidth so they can provide care. So we're pretty busy.
0: And why aren't hospitals doing this themselves if they realize the importance? What is it that makes this so complicated? And I know it is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's, uh, there, there are probably a handful of answers to that question. And it kind of also depends on the hospital. I would start just by saying that hospitals have, a range of priorities, right? Like the first goal of every hospital is to get people out of the hospital, hopefully, right? Like, that's kind of the whole point. You know, if you, if you go to the hospital, you really shouldn't be there. Nobody wants to be at the hospital. Unfortunately, a lot of things can go wrong with humans, right? You can get into a car accident, you can break a leg, something can happen to an organ, there's a long list of things that can happen. And because of that, hospitals have a wide range of priorities. And when it comes to funding, they're trying to address all of this list of things that can happen to a person. And then on top of that, they're trying to hire medical professionals that can support these various things. By the time you work your way through that list, uh, it's rare to find hospitals that are resourced up enough to where they're also thinking about upgrading the entertainment experience for patients.
0: It's like the high capital cost of it.
1: Yeah, exactly, and so that's partially why we're organized as a nonprofit, is because you know, in the for-profit world, the customers you have are people who can afford your product. In the nonprofit world, you're supporting people that can't afford the good or service.
0: I actually love that way of articulating it too.
1: Yeah, and it, and again, this is a huge simplification. I mean, that's not totally applicable. Like if you think of a symphony, usually symphonies are organized as nonprofits for various reasons, right? But. I, I think this is a really just kind of good starting block to conceptualize what the difference is. You know, a lot of people even think about nonprofits as entities that shouldn't be profitable, which actually is very far from the truth, right? Nonprofits really should be called for-purpose organizations. Okay. They're organizations that exist to perhaps fill in the gaps. Oh yeah. There, there may be some need in a community like access to clean drinking water, but perhaps there's not a strong enough profitable mechanism to incentivize a corporation getting involved. That's where nonprofits come in. It's usually a, a group of people come forward and say, hey, we believe this is a need that needs to be addressed. And we're going to raise money from other people who believe similarly to we do. I mean, practically, I, I sort of agree with the way hospitals you know, are, are prioritizing care first. Um, it would be wonderful if they were also able to think about entertainment and we're trying to help make that as seamless as possible and hopefully over time you know less expensive and
0: what about infrastructure and tech and tech support like this must be a huge thing that you provide on the back end that i would imagine hospitals don't want additional it team burdens i would think
1: you're exactly right you know we think of ourselves as a support layer to a hospital's it infrastructure so we actually have two programs right now that we think about day to day Uh, we have an initiative called project go-kart where we construct these Portable video game kiosks that have an Xbox and a monitor, and nurses will wheel them room to room so that kids can have access to video game content. And this is a device that helps healthcare staff make video games manageable in hospitals. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily have to know anything about an Xbox or a PlayStation if you're a hospital worker, right? You just have this cart, you plug it in, and you hit the on button, and everything magically works. It's very simple. It
0: looks unbelievable.
1: Thanks. I, you know, we we really designed it with the hospital environment in mind, and There are all sorts of small nuances within the design of the cart that speak to various um, considerations of the hospital environment. The carts are really intended for this specific purpose, and and they're not the be-all, end-all solution but they are a way to help make games available. We have another program called Player Two, which actually speaks to your question, which is we'll invite video game enthusiasts to volunteer and come into hospitals to actually act as digital activity managers. So they'll play games with kids. They actually solve minor tech support questions that pop up. They'll help distribute technology. And this is a way for gamers to apply the knowledge they've acquired through gaming over the years in kind of a direct way that has an impact in the hospital environment and also allows healthcare professionals to go about their day and not have to worry about someone's Xbox turning off or a kid accidentally uninstalling a game. You know, we're we're also, I think, championing this cultural idea that video games are beneficial. You know, I think ten or thirteen years ago, uh, and even in some places now, the idea of a doctor saying to you, "Yes, while you're here, you should play video games was maybe a little absurd, right? Because, you know, stereotypically, the doctor is kind of the last person who tells a kid to play video games, right? Like that's something that parents are kind of like very mindful of is how much screen time do my kids have? What is sort of healthy? Um, and so there's even this kind of cultural education we've been doing in terms of, okay, well, let's talk you through how video games are actually beneficial and what is the healthy amount of screen time and you know, how can games be used in this environment to actually help the healing process? So that's something that lately, as games have become more prevalent, that's been less of a discussion to work through. But certainly when we started, it was a bit different. And,
0: and how big is your organization to support 1.25 million kids a year? How many hospitals is that, too?
1: We right now have an, a presence in over 200 hospitals, primarily in North America. And our initiatives exist in such a way that it doesn't require and I don't want to tempt fate here, but it doesn't require too much bandwidth from a bunch of team members. So we have maybe seven full-time staffers. Wow. Yeah, we're not huge, actually. Like, staff-wise, we're, we're not quite large. Now, I, I also mention too, that some of our numbers are somewhat skewed in the sense that hospitals have massive scale. Um, like, Children's Hospital Los Angeles alone, last year, registered over 600,000 patients visiting their one facility in the course of a year. Wow. That breaks down to like 1,800 people per day coming to that healthcare facility for something, whether it's minor, like a minor checkup or something more serious. Now, when we deploy one of our gaming carts in this hospital, you know, over the last number of years, we've talked to different hospital staff from around the country and we've asked them, hey, you know, in a given day, how many kids do you think play on one of our gaming cards? Just what, what we think the average is. And sometimes one of our gaming cards might go to a playroom and perhaps 20 kids in a day use it, right? Like kids come in and out of the playroom. It's almost like a kind of a public space, right? Or if you think of like an outpatient area, maybe it's an area of the hospital where people are coming into a waiting room. Um, you know, it's almost like a kiosk, like a retail kiosk at that point where like, you know, multiple kids per day are, are using this device. I think you're being humble because
0: I think this really... I think this really impacts a child's experience at the hospital.
1: It does. No, it certainly does. I, I just try to be realistic about our numbers. I, I feel like we live in a day and age of entrepreneurship news where people are like, yeah, you know, they, they'll try to like inflate numbers. But we try to be very realistic. Like, we, we really think of our numbers in terms of play sessions. Like, We believe for sure our programs are supporting somewhere between six to eight play sessions per day. And when you multiply that by the number of gaming carts we've deployed thus far, it ends up being somewhere between 1.2 to 1.5 million kids per year, potentially. Are those unique individuals? Are they the same kids playing each day? We, we actually don't have like, you know, we don't have that level of insight into the hospital environment, but certainly it could be way more, really. Um, it just depends on how many kids are coming through that hospital. So what does
0: it cost to donate one of these machines? if someone wanted to help.
1: Yeah, I mean, we will allow people to come forward and actually, you know, fund the construction of one of these units and donate it to a hospital of their preference. And we set the commitment at 3500 per unit. But that includes a number of things. So it's the card itself, the gaming console. It's all the content we put on the, the device so all the video games get downloaded and installed. We actually hire people to do that. So we have one of our Actually, staffers that I mentioned earlier, his whole job is to basically update Xbox consoles and provide support to hospitals. That's what he does. Imagine explaining that to your mom or your grandma. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like, I I kind of think of it as like a, it's like working at GameStop, but the work you're doing is helping kids in hospitals. It's super fun. And actually, the guy, funny enough, the guy who does it for us uh, is a registered nurse. So he's pretty well educated in terms of like what's happening. (laughs) So then we'll also ship it anywhere in the US, and then we provide ongoing support and setup help. So, it's really like a blanket cost that helps provide the unit itself as well as uh, all the content and then ongoing sort of indefinite support for the device if the hospital has questions.
0: And how are you guys raising money and financing? I know you're a business guy. Yeah. Well, charity business guy, but you're a business guy hard. I can see it.
1: <coughs> I mean, I have like a, handful, a small handful of like entrepreneurial projects, and you, know, you and I obviously know each other through the Forbes community, so I like to think that I'm at least educated about the for-profit environment, and, and maybe the next time we chat, we'll be talking about one of the other things I'm working on at the moment. But our organization is really funded through a variety of means. We have a handful of revenue streams as a nonprofit. Every year, we host an annual fundraiser called Gamers for Giving. That generates a pretty significant portion of our revenue each year. We rent out a basketball stadium. but You could think of it as like a like the Jerry Lewis telethon meets a LAN party. So we rent out this basketball stadium. We have a couple thousand people bring their computers. They play video games for the whole weekend. And then we stream it on the internet. And we'll invite a number of content creators to broadcast from our event and help raise money through their communities that they've, they've built online. So like our event this past March... We ended up raising just shy of $700,000 over the course of a few days that we hosted the event. Wow. Yeah, it went pretty well, thankfully. All things considered, it was kind of a weird year. It's a lot of machines. It was a lot of machines, yeah, exactly. I mean, so we'll use that money and then we'll fund, we'll, we'll both support sort of our existing impact and then we'll also expand to new hospitals or help hospitals that are looking to, you know, increase maybe things that we've done already. Then, of course, we have donors who come forward as well. So, you know, you mentioned donating the gaming cart you know, anyone can support with really any amount. I mean, $10 can help us uh, ship small, like update care packages to to hospitals. $60 can help us buy a new game. $300 can help us buy a new console for hospitals. So it all sort of adds up over time and, and you can kind of watch in our annual report, the growth of our impact year over year and, and see that, you know, transpire. And that's
0: at gamersoutreach.org?
1: Yeah, so anyone can learn about us, gamersoutreach.org. That's the website for our organization and it has a bunch of information for people to get involved. Sweet.
0: Uh, and Zach, I'd love to hear about your story. How did you get into this in particular? Um, you mentioned you're thirty. What? Uh, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about your life, and I guess what culminated in you being ending up in LA and starting this?
1: You know, I always have been a video game enthusiast. You know, I grew up playing video games. Was always involved in kind of quote normal extracurricular activities as well you know like played sports throughout school and was in a band with friends and kind of had a variety of interests but um video games were a consistent hobby my, my dad was a computer science major and growing up we always had technology around the house and uh, i don't know he identified himself as a gamer but he certainly played a lot of video games and he influenced my younger brother and i and so at a young age i really knew that i wanted to work in the video game industry and when i was a bit older i became really interested in competing in video games. I I got really good at a couple of video games and started just developing an interest in wanting to host my own video game tournaments. These events that I started organizing just at a grassroots level, it started as me getting some friends together and you know, we would be in our my parents' basement, you know, with our TVs and our Xboxes. And then I kinda had this desire to see it grow beyond that and started hosting events at my local high school. I organized this Halo tournament and there was a police officer in my area who found out I was organizing this event. And I had for this particular event, I had actually gone to like all the local high schools and I was really like hardcore promoting. I was putting flyers in people's windshields. I had saved some money to like create a prize pool and really put a lot of effort into like, you know, almost like imagine being in a band and trying to get people to come to your show. I was kind of like doing the same thing. I got really amped about the idea of hosting a video game tournament for my friends um and it just so happened i called our local police department (laughs) and i was asking them if they might be able to provide just some oversight you know like maybe there's an intern or a security (laughs) officer that could come by and like help provide you know some chaperoning for all these different kids that were coming from kind of rival high schools it just so happened the person who picked up the phone belonged to this media censorship organization and he was not a fan of kids playing video games. And when I told him my friends and I were playing Halo, his response was, "Well, wow, I'm really surprised your high school is allowing you to organize a Halo tournament. Because Halo is an m video game. And I believe games like Halo are corrupting the minds of America's youth. And kids are training themselves to kill playing these violent video games. And he actually called our school district superintendent. And he told her my video game tournaments were a hazard to public safety. And threatened to pull security from our high school football games if my school allowed my event to happen on campus. And so I'm like 17, 18 years old at the time, had grown up playing video games. and It's a big issue to, to have to grapple with. It's a complicated topic in the video game industry, particularly because at this time, this is 2006, 2007, for whatever reason, there have been various stereotypes around video games in the gaming community. Particularly in the U.S., anytime there's a shooting or something violent happens, a lot of public officials are very quick to want to point a finger and video games often become a scapegoat for these atrocities. Now, personally speaking, in my own opinion, I think there's kind of a list of other topics to address before we get to video games, such as a person's psychological health, how do people get access to these firearms in the first place, um, et You know, there's, there's kind of a, a number of topics to, to chat about before we get to, wow, I'm really sorry somebody shot up a school, it's too bad they played violent video games all their life. Um, I'm not saying media doesn't influence us. And I'm pretty sure the research doesn't back that up either, but that's probably a whole other discussion. No, it is. I mean, you could, you could, could, I could start pulling out the data and the various research that's been conducted. Now, I'll I'll even admit that, obviously, I think media has some influence on all of our lives. I mean, we listen to music, we become inspired, we watch a great movie, and maybe it thinks, makes us see the world a little differently. But certainly, you know, I, I think this was an, an overreaction, for sure. And... At that time, as a young person, i had always grown up around these stereotypes and around these stigmas, and I was really frustrated as a video game enthusiast, and I wanted to demonstrate, you know, this is something that I believe as a gamer, actually, when we get together around what we're passionate about, it creates a sense of community, and there's a lot of goodwill that can be done as a video game industry and people. Uh, Let's show this officer, actually, what we can do with what we're passionate about. And so that's how I actually became involved with wanting to raise money for charity. I I organized a new tournament called Gamers For Giving, really originally to just try to get our community together in a way that could kind of make lemonade out of lemons. You know, we had this instance where I had 300 people signed up for my tournament. Our event was shut down two days before it was supposed to happen. And I thought that was wrong for a number of reasons, not even to get into sort of like the rights that an individual maybe has to like use a public space for, you know, an activity that's been approved. Uh, So. I, I wanted to at least demonstrate, hey, actually, let me, let me show you what I believe to be true. And I want to get the gaming community together for something that can do good in the world. And that's how Gamers For Giving was born. And that's how my own interest in philanthropy started. I, really, frankly, I, I don't know that I had a lot of interest in becoming the leader of a charity organization. I, I very much wanted to work in the video game industry. I wanted a career as an entrepreneur. Um, and it just so happened that as I became involved, I realized, wow, this work is really meaningful and important. And it was also really fun. I enjoyed doing it.
0: I'm sure it's not all go karts and huskies
1: all day. It's There's a lot of work that goes into <laughs> it, honestly. And yeah. you also, you deal with all those normal struggles that come along with entrepreneurship. And so, but I, I will note that, you know, my intent is quite genuine. There have been a number of times where I've had to gut check uh, and seriously think about like, okay, why am I really doing this? Like, this doesn't seem to be going anywhere. <laughs> you know, uh, my friends have jobs and girlfriends and I'm sitting here like, you know, living in my parents' house in my mid-20s, I was still living at my parents, you know, because I, I was kind of in this middle ground between trying to understand, like, is this what I want to do full time? How would I even make this into a career? Uh, so you have to kind of have those moments. And I think all, a lot of entrepreneurs go through this where you have to commit and recommit, maybe multiple times, you know, before you really reach a point where the organization exists
0: oh yeah at least for me i think there was like a year where i wanted to give up every day
1: yeah <laughs> and then it
0: became every week and i mean even when things are good those can often be the times of stress You're like why am i doing this it's an emotional roller coaster but there's something that keeps you going for me it's helping freelancers like just just the impact of, of speaking with the freelancers that we help like one guy when i was living in san francisco he was like he was, we were living in the same house it was a big house of 42 rooms it was actually a hacker hostel it was like, "What do you do?" He's like, "Oh, I have to move out. Like, uh, I'm a freelance writer." I said, "Oh, well, I'm starting this freelance platform. Why don't you join in?" I think a month later, he was paying his rent using money from our platform, and he said, and he came up to me like a few weeks later. He'd moved out, but he's like, "I found another place. I can't tell you how impactful this was." Uh, and he gave me a hug, and he said, "Like, this is just unbelievable. I can now afford to pay my rent." That's awesome. And it's just like moments like that. Like, we're a for-profit. But we're not necessarily turning a profit. So sometimes I feel like it's a non for profit. But it's these moments of impact that I think really continue, at least for me, probably for you too, the the drive. It's something deeper that keeps us going.
1: I know, you know, I think you touch on a really important point that people who aren't entrepreneurs, perhaps, I feel sometimes this is lost in the public discourse when people start criticizing millionaires or billionaires for the sake of the the wealth that they've created and, and the money that's been accumulated from that, is typically, I often find usually the people who have been running companies, and especially in our case, have started from genuine intent. And there's been a constant desire to of course, make like a profitable business endeavor. But usually I feel that entrepreneurs have this lust for freedom and just generally (laughs) kind of wanting to do things their own way, coupled with a sincere concern to help other people improve their situation in some way through what they're doing. That's brilliant. You know, whether that's a service that provides entertainment. In your case, you're basically providing employment to people, which I think is incredibly important. I mean, that touches on all sorts of philosophical topics around a free society and people being able to create jobs and create a living for themselves and build wealth it's hard to talk about that topic because it does require thorough discussion and a certain level of understanding of the division of labor and you know the value of capitalism <laughs> generally yeah it certainly can't go into an elevated yeah. pitch
0: but yeah absolutely i mean i can go super philosophically deep about complex complexity theory and you know creating dynamic pools of workers who each pick and choose tasks as they want in like an uberized way but creating complexity of workflows to actually generate value for the end consumer but none of that makes sense to the average person without needing to explain it for 20 minutes
1: and difficult to have that education uh, that sort of initial learning curve you know if folks have a hard time understanding Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah.
0: And I guess that brings me to the last thing, which is having fun while doing it. You and I have uh, gone go-karting together on a pretty cool go-karting track. I guess you're not doing that with COVID
1: No, I am. Well, I still, I realize I sort of answered that very enthusiastically. I sometimes worry about posting this because there is a little bit of a a visceral reaction, I think, that people have when they see anybody outside, you know, when we're all sort of isolating. My stance on COVID particularly, I'm acutely aware of the ways COVID spreads as well as the risks I impose on myself as well as others. And thankfully, carding is a pretty safe COVID activity in that everyone is literally wearing, it's about as PPE'd as you can possibly get. Everyone is wearing protective suits.
0: <laughs> as long as it's your own equipment, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm literally walking around the track with a an entire hood on my face underneath of a helmet, you know? So if, if I were to sneeze, it's not going anywhere. You know, it's literally trapped inside this giant thing around my head. So, yeah. Um, and then on top of that, you're really pretty distance from most everybody. It's actually pretty safe. I, I think, in fact, I, I would argue that during this time of, extreme closures and lockdowns is actually more important than ever that we find these activities that allow us to get out into the world and kind of experience life. Uh, And if I can do that through something that's safe, like carding, great. I think especially now that Gamers Outreach is, is a little better resourced This wasn't as true five years ago when we were like hardcore grinding and uh, I felt like every single moment of the day I had to work on the organization. And I still had that passion, but I also have recently developed a sense of sobriety around it all. There are times where I'm like on an airplane, maybe traveling, and I'll have this thought to myself, like if this plane were to go down right now, is there a list of things that I wish I would have done more of? I can definitely say that I spent a large part of my youth building Gamers Outreach, which I'm glad that I did. I'm very proud of everything we've accomplished and at least enjoy like a work environment that I've customized to sort of my preferences. And I have a, a team of people and and they're also now a part of that world. But I also feel that I have missed out on a few things in terms of leisure I'd like to catch up on. And I, I just want to make sure that I'm enjoying life along the way. I'm trying to kind of take like a Richard Branson approach to it. It's great to build a company, but also important to make sure that you're you're having a little bit of fun while you're doing it. My dad used to build indie cars in the day. And so I grew up kind of in the semi-racing family where pretty frequently, actually, when I was younger, we would go to these racetracks. My dad would help engineers uh, build indie cars. And when I was a kid, I like, really wanted to be a race car driver. My dad was like, not a fan at all. Like, he was, did not want to see his son in these, in these vehicles, ironically, that he was helping to build. But then I realized, you know, uh, I eventually moved to LA because I work from home. I wanted to be in an area where it was easier to facilitate sort of like a national presence for gamers outreach. And, and genuinely, I just enjoy Los Angeles a lot. I really love The culture of l.a. and the entertainment industry and the sense of aspiration that exists there and when i moved there i realized you know what i'm an adult now i can do what i want i'm gonna join a karting team so uh yeah man the karting team you were out with us i mean you met phil he's the team owner he used to be a formula one test driver and has actually raced in the indy 500 a couple times jensen buttons is on our team he's he was the 2009 f1 world champion He's been out with us actually quite a bit lately. It's so cool. It's a fun group. It's really, really cool. <laughs> well, that's awesome. And it's kind of very on brand. You know, we, we build these gaming carts. We call them go carts. It, it just so kind of works out. I noticed that. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we call that. them gamers outreach carts. Uh, but now that I'm on this karting team, it's like it's almost sort of like a marketing ploy for the organization as well. Yeah, no, I love it. It's good to combine your interests with your, your work. Yeah. Cool, Zach. Very fun. Absolutely. Just running out of
0: time, but uh, thank you so much for uh, joining find your story super fascinating and i'm glad that we can well i look forward to our next go karting session (laughs) thanks adam and learning more about charity life and also hearing about your for-profit projects on the side
1: yeah we'll talk again soon man all right cheers thank
0: you